Before we get to this week's episode, there's a new series in town that everyone's talking about. We Own This City. We Own This City is a high-intensity cop drama centered around the Baltimore Police Department's Gun Trace Task Force. Now, they're responsible for keeping crime and drugs off the street, but of course, there's internal corruption and plenty of plot twists also at play. Starring John Berntal and from the writers of The Wire, it is not one to be missed. That's We Own This City. All episodes available to stream on now. Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. So we've done quite a few episodes, Tom, but I'm actually quite surprised because this is the first guest that's had a really poignant link to my childhood. Really? <laughs> Go on. So you must have had when you were a kid, you know, you've got your like morning routines. Well, mm -hmm. me and my brother would get our bowl of cereal, we'd sit down at the table, you know, mum was faffing, probably trying to get us to get ready a bit quicker than we were. And we would always put on... Everybody loves Raymond. It was always on. Did you on. watch that? It was always it on was in the morning. It was always on. It was about seven thirty. It was just the perfect accompaniment to a bowl of cereal as a kid. I love how a show can also just be a part of your childhood. It can just be part of a memory. The whole setup. I genuinely can close my eyes and envisage myself at that table. It is mate. We just loved it. We thought it was hilarious. What cereal are you having? A bit of a Shreddies girl, me. Still yeah. am, you know. <laughs> and a bit of Everybody Loves Raymond. Well, the reason why we're saying that is because our guest this week is the creator of the show, which is a bit different for us as well. We've always had the sort of the star of the show, but we've got the man who mm. just created the series, Phil Rosenthal. Yeah, and it was a really cool series because it was based on this Italian-American family. And the entire show is just centred around family politics, how they all live on top of each other. They're all over-involved. Everyone's always fighting, but everyone adores everyone. And at its heart, it's just about that everyday humour that we can all relate to as a family. Yeah, it was also just a, a really popular time in comedy when the show came out. You had things like Seinfeld, Frasier, Will and Grace, Friends. Oh, I loved Will and Grace. That was another yeah, great really, one. really, really strong time for comedy in the US. And yeah, to get the creator is awesome. And he's not just the creator fan. He's also star in front of the camera in his new series, Somebody Feed Phil, which I adore. And what a gig this is. Because he gets gig. to Catastrophe. travel the world, eating local delicacies, opening our eyes up to all these local experiences. I, I genuinely think, aside from this, Tom, so don't get offended, that could be my dream job. Thanks. But, no, I do, I do, I do, <laughs> I'd I leave do get you behind, it. Yeah. sadly. But well, you know, I, I don't blame you. No, um, and it's not just about food, is it? It is about culture, no. it's about travel. And I know this is something that he's, he's going to be very, very passionate about. So some guests that we interview, you don't really know what to expect, but from watching somebody feed Phil, he just comes across as this lovely, so warm New Yorker. So we just knew that we were going to have a very, very lovely chat with him. Here's Phil Rosenthal on Plot Twist. Somebody feed Phil. 
Somebody feed Fran. <laughs> Phil, I've known you a long time, all the three minutes, and I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I've never liked you. Oh. <laughs> That's usually what happens. No, it's a, I thought, you know, a bit of Don Rickles humor to kick things off would be nice. One of my you know, favorite heroes. I thought he might be. You know, we had uh, we had Martin Sheen on the podcast, and whenever he referred to people he's admired in the industry, he'd say, I adore them. And my family, we, we adore you. Franz, not so fast, but, you know, we my family adore you. <laughs> well, that's mean. We're the same this end as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, it was, it was so thrilled to have you on. Well, look, we thought we'd kick off with a few random questions, more yes. tailored more tailored for you, uh, based on somebody feed Phil. I don't know if you've played the game Would You Rather before. I think, we're given I've, two I think options. I've heard of this, yes. Great, so yes. we're going to play a food-themed Would ah, You Rather. I so like it. our first question is, would you rather swim in a pool full of chocolate sauce or maple syrup? Chocolate, of course. Chocolate's my favourite thing. That was quite easy. So well, first of all, it's going to be a lot harder to swim in maple syrup. Yeah, you're going to sink, aren't you? Mm. Mm. And it's not going to feel good. <laughs> Sticky when you get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> would you be eating the chocolate as you go or just purely probably enjoying the luxury I would probably of drown. <laughs> just drown in it. <laughs> yeah. But what a, too much. what a way You've to go. You've just given me one more, one more on my list of ways I'd like to depart the earth. Drown in a pool of chocolate. I think oh, I'd be okay. up there with you on that one. Right. To be honest. At least the last thing you taste will be chocolate. Well, so this is a difficult thing because the next question that yeah. I actually had was what would you rather yes. give up, cheese or chocolate? But I'm cheese. presuming you're going to say cheese. cheese. Yes, of course. Yes. I feel like we've made that a bit one bit too easy for you. Yeah. I think so, yes. Well, I, I've got a good one based on the episode you did in Maine. Yes. Would you rather give up lobster or your family? What kind of question is this? My, my <laughs> wife is in the next room. I can't say lobster, but read my eyes. I was going to say, can I see you mouthing something there? <laughs> well, you can't eat your family, I guess, unless you're very desperate. <laughs> That's not the next question, by the way, which family okay. member would you rather eat first? Um, but right. the, the final and maybe the most important question, yes. if you had to pick one final meal to have yes what yes. would your final meal be i actually get asked this a lot and i've given it considerable thought i would return since this is going to be my last meal of my life mm. i return to my childhood favorites because i think that's what we want that kind Full of cycle. comfort at the end yeah. right mm. complete the cycle so it would be Pizza, hot dogs, hamburgers, fried chicken, <laughs> big chocolate dessert. But I think the final bite would be my mother's matzo ball soup. I like that. Nice. Yeah, yeah sentimental. Not funny, but nice. No, I like no, that. No, but I agree with you. I think, like you say, it's those childhood kind of comforts that remind you of growing up. I think a lot of people would agree with you and pick something from their childhood. Jay Rayner is in the London episode. Do you know Jay? Yeah the great uh, food critic and writer. So he asked me the same question, and I told him this theory of wanting to complete this cycle of life, and he said, well, then shouldn't your last meal be breastfeeding? And I thanked him for ruining the whole premise. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's really put a different spin on it, hasn't it? It does. Yeah, Terrible. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> Let's ask you a plot twist question, Phil, the first one. Our first yes. one is centred around 
life and career really and it could be it could be yes. anything in that sense if you had a standout plot twist moment from your career or life so far what might that might that be there's been several but the one that comes to mind i love using as an example because i know so many people struggle to make it in the world especially in their 20s i had studied theater my whole life in school that was i was in the after school program in in junior high and high school and i just loved trying to be funny on stage. That's all I wanted to do. And I had so many idols, you know, in comedy that uh, you just mentioned Don Rickles, but there are a lot of great comic actors. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Walter Matthau or Art Carney from uh, The Honeymooners. These are American great actors, really funny. Anyway, I wanted to be just like them. And I'm telling you all this because this is how much the dream meant to me. I studied theater in, in school and then knocked around New York for years, not being able to even get an agent or get an audition. And I didn't have the stomach for auditions. It was just so difficult for me. And then the break came when some friends of mine and I from college wrote a show for ourselves to be in. So that was one turning point because that turned out to be the ticket. That turned out to be literally writing your own ticket, mm. right? No one's out there waiting for you. Nobody's yeah. writing a show for someone they don't know. So you have the means to do it. Listen, you now have things that we didn't have. We're all born practically with a movie studio in our pockets, mm. right? Mm. So you can make films, you can write very easily, you can make short TikToks, you could start there and build out from there, right? Mm. But that isn't even the turning point that I was talking about. At the same time, a friend of mine and I wrote a screenplay together at the same time as that, again, writing your own thing. And we were able to sell that for a lot of money at the time. I went from being a hundred air to being a thousand air. And even that wasn't the turning point. The turning point came when the show that I just mentioned that some friends of mine from college and I wrote together, well, some bad things happened during that show. We got very, very successful. We became a great off-Broadway hit. And the person in charge of the show got a swelled head and didn't want anyone in that show to compete with her career. And so she started firing the people who were doing well oh, wow. in the show. And I was fired from the very show I helped create. And that was devastating. It was the worst thing to ever happen to me at this time. I waited so long for some break and here it was. And now I was cut loose from it. So I tasted success and oh. lost it within a year. And I now was lost at sea. I didn't know what to do. And the turning point came when I moved to Los Angeles and started pursuing a career in writing. I would not have done that had I stayed with that show. Mm. So that was actually the turning point. The lowest point in my life turned out to be the turning point in my life. That's the moment when you think it's all gone. Do you think though, because it did have some success and you were part of that creative setup, that it, despite the devastation, you were able to recollect your thoughts and think, actually, no, I can succeed in this space. It is possible. I didn't know at the time. The, the screenplay gave me a bit of confidence, but they never made that movie. Mm. So I wasn't that confident. I had to find someone else 
in Los Angeles, someone, I ran into a friend of mine whose plays I had been in at Columbia Grad School in New York, and he just happened to be looking for a partner to write sitcoms with. And so we teamed up, which I also recommend, because then, number one, you're not alone. Mm. You're not mm. uh, alone with your thoughts. You're not in your own way. You have someone to answer to and to answer for and to collaborate with. It's a lot easier. The other practical reason for joining up with somebody is that the business likes two for one. <laughs> they like a bargain. So when you're starting out, there's nothing wrong with that. After about four or five years of that, being a a team and working on various sitcoms, we split up amicably because now we both knew the, the game. We had gotten enough training that we could be individual writers. And sure enough, that first year that we split up, I got a tape of a comedian named Ray Romano who had done six minutes on the David Letterman show. And from that six minutes, David said, there should be a show for that guy. And they set about looking for writers to create a show for him. So Ray and I met. He met with lots of writers. I was meeting with different comedians as well. But I think his first choice for a writer wasn't available. And I <laughs> took the job. Did you have immediate chemistry with him when you met? Uh, that's a great question. He's awkward, especially when he just meets you. He's very introverted in a way and not sure what to say. And, and uh, at, at least this is how he was in, in 1995 when I met him, mm. right? And when someone is like that with me, uh, uh, I'm a little bit that way with them. So it was a slightly <laughs> awkward meeting. But the chemistry you're talking about was underneath. Mm. Why? Because we were both born in the same part of New York, Queens, New York. He had an Italian family. I had a Jewish family. It turns out those two families are not very different. I didn't know anything about him other than he was truly funny stand-up comedian. And I just asked him, as I would ask you, to tell me about yourself. And he said, well, I got twin boys and an older daughter, <laughs> and both my parents, uh, they live close by, and uh, they're always bothering me, and my brother's a police sergeant, and he lives with them because he's divorced, and he's kind of jealous of me, and he saw an award I won for stand-up comedy, and he said, it never ends for Raymond. Everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> and I said, well, wow, there's obviously nothing there we can use. <laughs> Yeah, where should we start then with a concept for a exactly. show? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, it doesn't sound like much on the surface. And I said, well, that might be a good place to start. And he goes, what, that? That's just my life. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just it's your relatable. life. It's relatable, isn't it? Exactly. And what I didn't know about the characters of these people, I filled in from the characters of my family. And it turns out Jews in the towns, like I said, not so different. All problems are solved with food, and your mother never leaves you alone. But I think anyone who's so watched we're not it so different. could find yes. a family member that they can relate to in any of those setups. I think that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Yeah. Listen, I get letters from around the world, still, emails. Uh, that's my mother from Sri Lanka. <laughs> I don't know your mother, I was writing my mother. Mum's universal. There's always mum behaviours everyone's going to have. Yeah, and you meet, you meet people. It's the same with food. Everyone thinks that they are, you know, they have the most. 
you know? Oh, you haven't eaten until you've been to a Chinese person's house. Oh, you haven't eaten until you come to an Indian person's house. Oh, you haven't eaten until you come to a Jewish person's house. Right? Everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. And same with the mother. Oh, you won't believe how in my life my mother is. Really? You're very unique. <laughs> <laughs> gotta love mum gotta love mum right we had uh, we had Stephen Merchant on the podcast a few weeks ago I love him he's, he's, he's he used brilliant. to work out with me at the local gym oh really here really? in LA yes oh, I love wow. him yes he's fantastic yes. two gangly idiots trying to lift weights <laughs> <laughs> but we were saying that with a lot of these iconic comedies and he's just a new show himself that a lot of these characters are based on people that you've met over the years and it's you've just created yes. these ideas and then they've Yes. Who you see on screen. These are everyday people. And that's something really It comes from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't come from nothing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, listen, I can't write science fiction. I, I, I have nothing but awe for the people who can create whole worlds that don't exist. I have to, maybe I'm not that great a writer, uh, look around and, and notice things. I always tell people, keep a journal. Why? Because it's easier to write things down than to write. Right. So if you just keep a journal just for yourself of stuff that happens to you during the day, it could be boring as hell. But maybe if you do it every day, something's going to happen to you or something is going to occur in your mind the way you think about something ordinary that no one else thought that way. That's all we are. That's what differentiates me from you and me from you is everything that's happened to me filtered through the way I think. Mm. that's what each of us brings to the table. Everything that's happened to you filtered through the way you thought about it. I think that's the funny thing is sometimes when you step back and even just, like you say, just watch your own day-to-day behavior. Yes. When you step back yes. from being in it, a yes. lot of the things we do are hilarious and ridiculous. Yes. And, and like you say, when you play it back, it suddenly you see it through an entirely different lens. Yes, and usually it's not when it's happening to you. You no. think it's a tragedy. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I used to fight with my parents and think, how unlucky am I to have these parents who, who don't appreciate anything that I give them, for example, as a gift. And, and once during the show, I was on the phone with my parents because they returned like the fourth gift that I had given them. <laughs> they just returned to the store and traded for something else, and I'm yelling at them. And the writers come around because it sounds like I'm having a heart attack in my office, and that might be fun to see. But they come in, and I hang up the phone. They said, what was that? And my parents, they, they, this toaster that I brought them that said, everybody loves Raymond on the side of the toaster. Is it like a cast and crew gift I sent to them? They didn't even open it. They just took it back to the to the store and traded for a coffee maker. They don't even care that it came from me. They don't. And, and one of the writers go, oh, you got to write that. That's a show. I said, no, I'm not writing that. They said, why not? I said, because it's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> this is very random. I got, this is true story. I was on a run last week. Yes. I was on yes. the way back down. I'd almost finished the run and I got attacked by a buzzard, which is a big bird. It, I know what a buzzard yeah, is. Holy cow! Yeah, it scared it scared the crap out of me. But then I've been telling attacked. It, yeah, it was swoop, it was swooping down on me. No word of a lie. I must have been in a, in, a, in a territory. It was absolutely terrifying. But then I've been telling everybody. Were you wearing meat? Well, I don't know whether the shiny bald head maybe it was attractive to. Did it. it attack your head? It was trying to. It was swooping down on me. You you uh, obviously you're 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 a proud bald fellow. So maybe Don't from be. the air it, lo- it looked like an egg. Yeah. <laughs> It's a tasty little egg snack. But the reason Maybe why I was thought st- it was her egg. <laughs> Possibly. Oh, I dropped yeah. one. I better get pick that back. you up and fly off. Yeah, pick you up, fly you back to the nest. No, but the- Make you wait for you to hatch. <laughs> but 
the reason why I was saying is at the time I was I was terrified, but then I've been telling of everybody. Course. I've been telling everybody and, and, and you know cracking up laughing. So you know, of course they are because it didn't happen to them. Mel Brooks always said uh, to me. <laughs> Uh, a comedy is if you fall into an open sewer and die. What do I care? But to me, tragedy is if I cut my finger. Well, I was going to laugh, Phil, when you were saying about gifts. My um, my 92-year-old grandmother um, gives gifts back to us after we've gifted them to her. So we'll give she them to her. She forgot that she Christ- got them from you. Exactly Great. that. So you'll get it, give it to her for Christmas <laughs> and then she'll tell you with a really thoughtful backstory why she's selected a specific gift and then gives you the exact gift awesome. that you've given her already. And like you say, when I was a bit younger, it used to upset me. Now I love it. Yes. I think it's hilarious. Now it's hilarious. Yes, exactly. of course. <laughs> we just need a little distance. I actually wrote a book about this whole thing. Not that I'm here to sell books, but it's called You're Lucky, You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom. And it's how you can mm. draw from your own life in your, in your writing or really anything you do. Uh, take a bad situation that you think is bad at the time and turn it into something good. I like I that. that. I love that. Um, I want to come back to Everybody Loves Raymond because there's a part of that that kind of links on to, to travel and somebody feels yes. Phil. But talk to us about life growing up and obviously the influence of your parents. People loved watching them on the show. What was it like, uh, life like growing up in, in Queens? And Well, I don't say this to bring the room down, but it does inform, I think, everything, which is they were Holocaust survivors. Mm. And so the point of view on life is, is a little different than you would get from, quote unquote, normal upbringing. Mm. Uh, I remember once, for example asking for my 10th birthday for the same five-speed bicycle that all the other kids were getting for their birthdays. And my mother said, do you know what I got for my 10th birthday? So that's where she was coming from, you see. Mm. I was a spoiled little boy, and they had spoiled me because they wanted a better life for me. But what I didn't have was perspective. I didn't understand how lucky I was. I just wanted what everybody else had. And I didn't care what my parents went through. I just want the bike. I don't need your sad story, right? Now, of course, I'd like to slap that little kid and make him wake up. But we grew up not with a lot of money. And we grew up with both parents working. And delicious food was not a priority. Cheap food was a priority. And that's how it tasted. It was hurriedly prepared. It was not the world's finest ingredients. I used to joke that in our house, meat was a punishment (laughs) because it was very gray and very, very tough and chewy. (laughs) It's as if my mother had a setting on the oven for shoe. (laughs) And I couldn't, I, I just never had delicious food until I left that house and ate literally anywhere else. Like I remember being in college and we went out for a cheap Italian meal and I had pasta with sauce and I couldn't believe how delicious it was. Just a very simple, cheap bowl of pasta. And my friends were like, why are you so excited? I said, this is incredible, the flavor. It's so good. Like what are these little uh, chopped up white bits in the sauce? They said, what, garlic? I said, yes, garlic. (laughs) I never had garlic. I never had it. Wow. Right? So it was like for me, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, when she opens the door and now the Mm. movie is in color, it's a little like that. 
And there were other moments like that in my life. We couldn't afford to travel anywhere. We went to maybe two little trips in the United States. One was to Atlanta for a bar mitzvah, and the other when I was nine, and the other when I was 12, I went to, to Miami because an uncle had a condo that we could stay in for free, and we begged them to take us on the way home to Disney World, which had just opened, which had just opened in 1972, and it was the greatest day of my life. Mm. I mean, say what you want about Disney, I think the great thing that Disney does that most people don't even acknowledge is that it awakens a sense of travel in a child. Mm. You're, you're actually, think of how it's laid out, Disneyland. You have these different worlds, different yeah. lands, Tomorrowland, mm. Frontierland, Adventureland. You're traveling. You're going to different places. Now, yes, it's all self-contained. It's very easy. And what I try to tell everybody, Americans especially, is, you know what's better than Epcot at Disney World? The world! <laughs> the real world! <laughs> if you like the French little uh, uh, store in Epcot, guess where that creep is going to be really, really, really good? <laughs> right? Guess where, the, guess where the tacos are really good? <laughs> you got to go to the source, people. Mm. When did you first realize then you had this love to explore and travel? Yeah, I know you went to Florence. I think you were 23. Yes. Oh, my goodness. The first time I went to Europe, I got a cheap courier flight, meaning they, they pay for your flight to take their cargo as your excess baggage. I don't even know if this exists anymore, but oh, this wow. was in the early 80s. And so you do that. They don't pay you, but the flight is free to Europe. And once you're in Europe, you have two weeks to do whatever you want. They're not paying for any of it. You're just going to take that flight back home and do the same thing on the return. So I went to Paris, had a week in Paris, then an overnight train to Florence. Wow, it blew my mind. I made friends that on that overnight train that I'm still friends with. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Yes, I love that. They, have, uh, they, they were my age. We stayed up all night in that car, that third-class cabin, where they have three places to sleep on each side of the, of the co compartment, and we stayed up all night. He didn't speak any English, and she spoke a little broken English. They would draw for me in my little journal where I should go in Florence, and they would draw pictures. So they draw the Duomo as if you were going to miss it, right? <laughs> And, and then they gave me the address of their bakery where they worked. And so, of course, the next day I went to visit them and they treated me like I was some returning victorious leader. Oh. Just because I had come from America, the father was like, America, points at me, John Wayne, John Wayne. And he gives me thumbs up. He, you know, it was a different time. And he gave me everything that he made in his bakery to try. He set up a little table and his friends who, who, who made pasta down the street, they came when they heard the American boy was here. And, and the, the, the lady who made sausages came. Everybody, it was like out of a Frank Capra movie. The whole town seemed to come over and wanted me to try their things because I was from another country. That, I mean, I could cry thinking about it. And of course, we stayed in touch. So the next year I'd come bring another friend. And then the next year I'd come and now I have a girlfriend. 
her name is Monica and I married her and, and, oh. uh, they became friends. And then when they came to New York, the whole family stayed in our little apartment for, for a week. And then I lost touch with them when I moved to LA. And then if you see, I don't know if you can see this. I did a show on the American public broadcasting system, PBS called I'll have what Phil's having. It was the precursor yeah, yeah, yeah. to somebody yeah. feed Phil. The name of that show, the episode is Italy. And I walked into that bakery after not seeing them for 20-something years. Were they still there? Oh, yes. wow. Oh. So you can see that in that show. That's so heartwarming. That? Yes, and I just corresponded with them uh, two days ago again. Yeah. And every time I go to Florence, I, of course, I see them. That's amazing. That's awesome. This is what can happen when you travel. Yeah. So I'm talking yeah. to you young people. Young people out there, if you have a notion to travel, get there any way you can. I realized right away on the first trip, this is what my extra money is for. This is what every dime I make that's not for rent or food in the immediate is going to be for these experiences because you cannot, cannot underestimate how important they are in your life. But you talked there not only about the experience of a different culture, but it's the people there Always. as well that make the experience isn't it like seeing those different perspectives those different upbringings like the, i say that the people bring you in to where you're visiting that really makes it it's always the case and if you really watch my show you'll know that it's not really about the food yeah i'm just using food and my stupid sense of humor to get you in to get you to see what i'm seeing and to have what i'm having to travel because in the traveling, you get a different perspective on your life. So if I want to ask you a question, right, and you're going to be on television with me, you might be a little bit nervous, but you're going to be a little less nervous if you're doing an activity that you know very well and mm -hmm. that you're good at. And most people I find know how to eat <laughs> <laughs> and I like it. So right away, it's something nice and good. And mm. now we're connecting. So I always say food is the great connector. And then for me, laughs are the cement. Yeah, agree. I love that you've, you've made a show out of a passion, but I also love the, the production company name. Uh, Lucky Bastards? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that comes from uh, my brother. My brother, uh, when I told him I got this job, he said, what do you mean? I said, uh, what is this show? I said, they're going to let me do this show where I... I go around the world and try to get people to travel by showing them the best places to eat. And he said, they're giving you that show. I said, yeah. He said, really? What are they going to call the show? The Lucky Bastard? And I said, quit your job. He was already a television producer. Quit your job and come produce the show with me. And we'll call our production company Lucky Bastards. And That's so safe. now I, I feel very, very lucky in that I get to do the show with him. Dream gig. Dream gig. Ask me how long it took to get that gig. <laughs> how long? 10 years. And that's after having some success with Everybody Loves Raymond. Took me 10 years to get the job. Wow. Because when you walk into your agent's office after having had a somewhat successful sitcom and you tell them you'd now like to do a food and travel show, they look at you as if you have pooped on their desk. <laughs> But they didn't seem, the insight was, oh, it needs to be about barbecue food. Uh, yes. They seem to be quite almost short-sighted in a way, not actually. Of course. Well, that's welcome to Hollywood. 
What was the line that changed it? I went around uh, the, uh, what you're referring to is my, my stories about going to the different networks to try yeah. to pitch the show. And they would tell me, uh, the head of the travel channel, for example, said, we're, we found that our audience doesn't really like travel. <laughs> and I said, oh my, what are you going to do? Well, we do travel adjacent shows. I said, what's that? Well, we have a show called Pimp My RV. He said, you understand? I said, I think I do. You pimp an RV, but you don't go anywhere? And he said, that's right. And by the way, the only food our research shows that people like is barbecue. I said, okay, thank you. I said to my agents, can we go to PBS now, the public broadcasting system? Because I thought I would be welcome there. In fact, I thought I would be the young buck on public broadcasting. I'd be the young, the young stud on that uh, network. And uh, they said, no, we got to go to the Food Channel. So we go to the Food Channel. And the Food Channel is owned by the same people who own the Travel Channel. And the head of the Food Network says, we're kind of getting away from the food thing. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, we're more into tra uh, food adjacent. He actually said food uh, also adjacent. Everything's adjacent. <laughs> and and uh, it's more competition shows where food is just a you know part of it. I see. By the way, the only food people like is barbecue. And it, it was like that for many other networks. My agents didn't want me to go to PBS at all because there's really no money there. But when I finally went there as a last resort, they were very responsive. They, they said, can you tell us what the show is like? And I said, well, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. And they understood that and said, we've been looking for a food and travel show with humor for a long time. And so after 10 years, I was in the right place at the right time. Wow. And I did six episodes there, and it went very well, and we won the James Beard Award for Best Travel Show, and then they couldn't afford to do the show anymore. And, and luckily, Netflix came along. And picked it up. And we had to change the title, and we changed the title, but it's ostensibly the same exact show. And five series later, it's incredible. Can yes. we um, also on changing the title? Can we just talk about the intro music because I best. think it's, it's probably ever. one of the single most catchy intros that I've ever seen on a show. It's number one. It's uh, number one. I'm so, I'm so glad you feel that way. When I met with Netflix, they asked me, "How's this for a very sweet question to be asked in a creative environment? Was there anything you didn't have on the other show that you would like to have on this show?" And the only thing I said was, I'd like a theme song. <laughs> Give me a jingle. Okay. <laughs> and they said, oh, okay, that, no big deal. And I had met this band, this amazing band called Lake Street Dive. Have you heard of them? Lake of Street Dive. I want you to go to your Pandora or your Spotify. They have several albums. They're absolutely fantastic. I wrote some lyrics I sent it to them. They fleshed out the lyrics and came up with that tune. And it, it's just my favorite song. <laughs> I love it. I just it's think so it's great. great. You, you can't underestimate the importance of a theme song. It, it gets you in the mood. Yeah. Mm. You know, look at the Friends theme song, yeah. right? Would it be even as popular as it was without that song? How long are you mm. spending, Phil, at each uh, location? If you go to Helsinki, to Maine, to New yes. Orleans, how long are you spending at each individual location? I'd like to stay a lot longer in each place because I fall in love with them, but we stay a week. 
it's we do have a lot of footage in that time, mm. and we have to cut it down to less than an hour. It also mm. looks like I eat a lot, doesn't it? Well, I was going to say, does your doctor check your <laughs> arteries? Does. Is he is he is he making sure you're okay? Or? I'm okay. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> the secret is, you know how they make a dog food commercial? Well, they don't feed no. the dog, right? They don't feed the dog until the commercial. So I'm the dog. <laughs> You're sat there salivating, waiting for the food to come. I don't eat until you see that scene. And that's usually all I ate that day. But then you enjoy the food So more. yes, I'm excited. I'm thrilled to be eating what I'm <laughs> eating. But I, even then, I only take a couple of bites and pass it on to the crew who are looking at me with their tongues hanging out usually. Yeah, I bet. Being crew on that show must be torture just watching no, somebody eat all the amazing no. food or do they they get the they, they get, get the remnants oh they get no they better. get not only do they get everything but you know uh contractually you feed your crew right you yeah. you have to take a break at a specific time you can't just shoot for many hours without taking care of the people and giving them food and invariably the restaurants that we're filming in will we prepare a crew meal for them so they eat Fabulously. Amazing. I, th I think you in Helsinki, you said it's like feeding uh, <laughs> seals at the zoo, which I quite enjoy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got to come back to uh, some of the specifics of, uh, of the series, but maybe we can ask Fran another plot twist question. Yeah, so we like to talk about plot twist people. So is there yes. someone in your life who has influenced you in an unexpected way or people would be surprised to know has influenced you or changed, changed the direction of your life? Well, I, I'm going to say Ray Romano, right? Mm. Because not only was he my, my partner in making this nice sitcom, but his aesthetic, which I thought was a pain in the neck at the time, <laughs> meaning he wouldn't do things. Here's an example. Deborah, the wife in the show, is supposed to be a bad cook. Okay. Even her coffee is terrible. So we have him sip a coffee in the, like the second episode. He's like, oh my God. And he stops and he says, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. I said, why? He said, I don't really drink coffee. I said, wow, Ray, you know, it's TV. In the cup can be anything you want. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I don't think they'll buy it. <laughs> now, he didn't realize it. Okay. He was just insecure as an actor. But what he really was, was doing the number one rule of the method, method acting. It's got to be real. It's got to feel real. It's got to look real. And if it is real, you have a better chance of convincing the audience that it's real, right? So to me, it's just, oh my God, can you believe it? He's not going to, okay, so we'll just cut that bit. And then like eight shows later, we forgot, and there was another coffee thing, just we're having coffee in the morning. And I caught it, and I said, oh, Ray, sorry, we put coffee in this coffee. We'll change that. And he goes, nah, nah, at some point I got to start acting, I guess. <laughs> 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 and what I loved about that was he was so averse to doing anything that smelled fake or what we mm -hmm. called sitcom -y. That seemed like a sitcom. That didn't seem like... So we had this rule. Could this happen? That was our only rule. And don't you know, that's the hallmark to everything. That mm. relatability. You mentioned it before. That's what's relatable. 
the stuff that really happens. 90% of the stories you saw on Everybody Loves Raymond happened to me or to Ray or to one of the other writers. In fact, I made sure that we had early work hours so that you could go home for dinner every night. Why? Because that's where stories were coming from. You can't write about real life unless you have one. So that was very important. That's what made the show relatable. And once you're relatable, once they believe you as a family, they will follow you into any story mm. that you want to go. Right? As long as it stays believable. I like the story with Ray Is it with Italy. That he was quite stubborn about travel. He didn't like to go anywhere. And you were saying, oh, you've got to go to Italy. And he, he was, didn't seem to be too enthused by the idea. So you wrote it into the show. <laughs> well, that, that was after season one. I asked him, you know, where he was going on his little vacation in between seasons. And he said he goes to the Jersey Shore, which is New Jersey, just below New York City. It's where he'd gone his whole life. And that's where he was comfortable. And that's not where he far. wanted to go. And I said, do you want to go to, have you ever been to Europe? He says, nah. I said, why not? He goes, oh, I'm not really interested in other places. <laughs> and I thought, wow, because I had had that experience. I just told you about going to Italy and having yeah. that time, right? I said, we got to do that show. He goes, what do you mean? I go, we're going to send you to Italy with your attitude of not wanting to go. And you're going to come back as me. Someone very excited about going, having been transformed by the magic of travel and the beauty of Italy and the beauty of the food and the people. He goes, I don't think so. It took me three years to get him on a plane. And that episode is so important because what I saw happen to the character that I wrote, that character arc where he gets woke in Italy, <laughs> I saw happen to my friend Ray. I saw it happen to him. He got it. His eyes lit up. He couldn't believe how delicious the pizza was. He couldn't believe how delicious the gelato was <laughs> and how beautiful everything was. And he's telling me as if I've never been there. Phil, have you tried this gelato? Yes, I have. He goes, isn't it good? I'm like, yeah, it is. So now he goes all the time. And doing that for him, there's a straight line from that moment to somebody feed Phil. Because I saw the joy that it gave him. And it gave me quadruple the joy mm. that I could turn him on to that. And I thought right then and there, what if I could do this for other people? So that's the show. I'm glad you brought up that episode because that's the one. One that inspired you. Yes, that episode was 22 years ago. Gosh. Yes, that's how old I am. <laughs> no. <laughs> Going back to somebody, uh, Feed Phil. No, I mean, it's like asking what your probably your favorite child, but do you have a, a particular favorite place that you visited or something that's maybe exceeded what you, you thought initially? I'm going to say Italy because it has this emotional power on me, right? Because of my experiences there. Mm. You know how you have a place, you probably have this, both of you, a place where it was, it's not your home, but it feels like home. It feels like maybe you've been there before, maybe, or, or you're just, you're, on the one hand, knocked out by how, how spectacular it is and how different it is from your life, and yet super comfortable at the same time. That's your magic place. Well, Fran, you can relate to that, can't you, after recent events? 
Yeah, I actually got married in Italy five weeks ago, and oh, we got married in a beautiful borgo with a uh, an Italian couple owned, and it genuinely was now will forever be our home away from home. I think it was absolutely stunning. So I'm with you there I'm on so Italy happy. having a piece of my heart. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'm happy for you. Oh, thank you. That's great. I do Wonderful. also have a question to ask you while I've got you, sure. um, because we're having a bit of a sort of uh, mini trip away. And I know that you've done an episode oh, yeah. on New York and you're from Queens, but I'm visiting New yes. York at the end of July. And if there's one place oh. I need to go and eat, where would you say that that place is? Do you like uh, steak? Yes. Then Peter Luger's. Peter Luger's. Okay, fine. Which is in the Good. show. There we go. That's my one takeout. I, I, knew, I knew I had to ask you because I needed the one single. <laughs> it's not just me sending you. Uh, I know you like Italy now and you saw Massimo Bottura. He loves it too. Yeah. I want you to see what we ate in that scene and order all those things. Order the exact menu. Okay, great. I'm going to do that. I think so. But <laughs> how much time will you have in New York? Uh, I think we're going for four nights. So quite a all quick right. trip. So you know, you know to have you, you're going to want some New York pizza. Yeah. Right? So you'll have that and... and there's a lot of great stuff. There's even new Bagels. stuff that since I filmed. Yeah, so much choice. You're going to go crazy. Well, you made me want to go to Portland, and that wouldn't have been perhaps top of my list oh. in the US. You know, the street food looked incredible. So It is oh, incredible. Yeah. The, you're talking about Portland, Oregon, because yeah. we go to Portland, Maine as well this season. And, and that's wonderful, especially if you like lobster. Yeah. Oh, well, all of it. It's quite a mix, though, in the street market, though. There was the... Yes. Yeah. There is. Wow. There is. Just just before we, we, we go, Phil, one question I wanted to ask you. You directed Bill Clinton at a, a correspondence dinner years ago. How was, yes. that, how was that experience? Uh, surreal. <laughs> I, I had been asked to write jokes for certain speeches. There's like a humor season in Washington, mm -hmm. not like today where it's all year round. Uh, <laughs> There's like in April, they have these dinners where the president is called upon to make humorous remarks in addition to a speech. And I had a friend from high school, I think it was, who, who was a speechwriter for him. So I was doing Everybody Loves Raymond at the time, and I would write in jokes. And it was pretty heady stuff to see the president of the United States tell your jokes on TV. And I'd always had this idea to do a short video, like a Saturday Night Live style video with the president for this big dinner, the White House Correspondents Dinner. And they said, don't be crazy. He doesn't have time to make a video. He's the president. I'm like, I, I know, but maybe one day. And sure enough, his last year as president, he had some time. So they had me not only co-write this video, but come and direct wow. the president. And he was f quite good. He was scarily good actor. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> you know, when people are such great actors, you wonder what else are they acting? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, amazing. So, so that, was, that, was, that was terrific. He, he was a very, very sharp and still is uh, mm. and very articulate and amazing speaker. Probably the best speaker I've ever seen. Uh, President Obama is right up there, but... But Clinton had this magic. I, I saw him speak at Madison Square Garden, and he just came out and he, he just leaned on the podium in a very folksy way, and he just started talking uh, probably at this volume, and, you know, 20,000 people are just wrapped at attention, and he was speaking extemporaneously. I, uh, this is a, a talent and an ability Still, that I, mm. I, I, I can't imagine 
And what he's saying is brilliant. He's a brilliant man. Maybe, maybe not in every aspect of his life, but, <laughs> but yes. And a sense yeah. of humor. Phil, thank you yes. so much for coming on Plotters. We've loved having you on. Love the series. We hope to see more. And uh, hopefully we can speak again soon. Uh, all I want to do is this for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm happy to work on other things. Fingers uh, crossed. I just want to say before I go that we have a podcast called Naked Lunch with my friend David Wilde, a writer for Rolling Stone. So if people haven't had enough podcasts, here's another. More of you. Some more to snack on. Nice. <laughs> I love meeting you guys. Thank you. Thanks, You're very girl. sweet. And, and uh have fun in New York, dear. That's going to be great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Take care. A huge, huge thank you to Phil Rosenthal for that wonderful interview and also my personal itinerary for New York. You're all set now, Fran. You're ready to go. I'm all set. The only thing I wasn't set on is, why didn't I invite him to my wedding? If I'd have known he loved Italy so much, I reckon I could have guaranteed a yes to attend. <laughs> Probably. He was very passionate about it. He would have loved it. I wasn't sure. I felt like when we asked him, what's been your favourite place? Because he's gone all over the world. Mm. You just say, I can't, I can't comment. But no, he was straight in with Italy. Yeah, he just knew, didn't go. he? Missed opportunity. And the reason you could tell his face just lit up talking about the people that he met there and that he's mm. still in touch with them, which yeah, is mental so because think of how many people he's probably met that he's had affection for. And yet those people, the very first trip he made, have still got a place in his life. Oh, it was just sentimental. It was so cool. Yeah, his whole story. And it's just the passion, I think, from the start. When we mentioned uh, travelling up front, there was this immediate sort of extra dose of energy and very much wanting to encourage everyone to travel. It's not even as though he just talks fondly of his own experiences. He wants to share that with people so they can go and experience it as well. Yeah, you kind of get that vibe from watching somebody feed Phil. That is the kind of premise, isn't it? Obviously, you see all these wonderful dishes and cuisines, but he's really wanting people to see the world and, you know, see everything that we have in common and the differences. And Nike says, Tom, food connects us. It does. Food connects us. Sit down, share a pizza. Who knows where you end up? <laughs> I also enjoyed, we talked in the intro, didn't we, about like childhood memories. And in his very last meal, again, he could have picked from so many different oh, cuisines yeah, yeah. and choice. And he chose his childhood food, which I really liked. Yeah, really sentimental. And the plot twist aspect as well. We, we see this mega successful guy, been behind a huge, huge comedy like Everybody Loves Raymond and is now the star of this new show, which is doing so well. But actually, he's had all those trials and tribulations that you don't see before that. You know, he had his own show that he was kind of effectively booted out of and then had to wait 10 years to do Somebody Feed Phil. He wrote a show, it got picked up, and then he got booted off of it. Yeah, like, brutal. I'm surprised that he had the resilience to come back from that. I don't know if a lot of people would. I think you'll, you'll go one way or the other, won't you? I think he'll either give you that fire to then realise, I can do this and I will go and push on and prove you wrong, or... You might crumble, mm. but thankfully for all of us, he, he went the who's other way. Who's laughing now? Yeah, who's laughing Quite now? Quite literally, <laughs> him and us. <laughs> but it was cool, the story of how Everyone Loves Raymond came about. Yeah, six minutes on David Letterman, then meets Phil and they, they combine and share all those stories and, you know, slightly different backgrounds, but actually so much that's relatable. And that's what 
kind of made Everyone Loves Raymond a success, didn't it? Because it was the relatability of that comedy. And he said, didn't he, like, if you want the great material, just carry a notepad around and write observations. So don't worry, Tom, got a notepad out here making some observations about you. Might write a sitcom about it, might not. <laughs> I don't think it would picked up. <laughs> I don't think it would be that interesting, yeah. actually. I've got to be Definitely honest. Definitely not the success of Everyone Loves Raymond, <laughs> no, that's for sure. No, Ghost the pilot. I'd find it funny. Yeah. One viewer. There we go. I'll take that. <laughs> But he was genuinely as warm and lovely as we expected. He had a real sort of sparkle about him, which I think even without being able to see him, you can hear that in his voice. Yeah, and that that sort of New Yorker sense of humour came through at times as well, which was really great. really enjoyed that. Yeah, he was awesome. So big, big thank you to Phil Rosenthal for a trip down memory lane and a few trips around the world. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed both of those. So I'm going to go and get planning New York. So we will see you next week. Ciao.